On today's episode, I have Tyler Haig, multifamily investment sales broker from Collier's. So he's been on the podcast before. He's one of uh, one of my favorite guests. Um, and what we're going to do today is go through what's going on in the multifamily market in August 2023. And Tyler covers over a dozen markets. So it'll be an interesting conversation hearing about more than just one place. Enjoy. Listen, everybody, we all know that real estate is the most proven way to build wealth. But why isn't everyone wealthy from real estate then? It's hard to know where to start, and most of the education out there is just complete trash, and you end up investing your money on a series of courses instead of in real estate. That's not how this podcast works. We give you the blueprint to successful real estate investing and bring on guests actually willing to share their secrets. I started my real estate investing journey as a freshman in college when I bought my first duplex and have been in the trenches doing deals ever since. And today, I now own hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. On this podcast, you will learn what you actually need to know to be a successful active or passive real estate investor. And we'll offer our takes on what's happening today so you can navigate this market and build wealth. I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Brenneman Blueprint. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Brenneman Blueprint. Tyler Haggs on the podcast, multifamily investment sales broker. Thanks welcome. for having me back. Awesome, yeah. So yeah, just before we started recording, I was telling Tyler the podcast has really grown a lot just in the last, especially six months. I've, I, uh, I've, I've went on uh, over thirty podcasts uh, like in the last year or so, or really in the last nine, you know, six to nine months. So that's gotten a lot more traffic on this and just kind of been putting out episodes weekly. So that's helped kind of cool. people look for it. And then obviously, uh, uh, you know, having, having interesting things to say, I mean, the last episode we, we had, I really liked, cause I mean, it was more like, Hey, here's what's really going on. Not sort of just everyone saying like, Hey, it's all rosy and it's all good. Like yeah. there's, there's, you know, trouble out there. It's not everybody's in trouble, but there's, uh, you know, a lot going on where it's not like 20, 21, whereas everything's just a, a three cap and, you know, 50 offers on it. So um, anyways, so yeah, just uh, if you haven't, if you could, you know, make sure to tell a friend about the podcast that would enjoy it. If you can leave a review on either Apple or Spotify, uh, you know, like a, a five star review, obviously uh, that, that will help um, where I'm over 100 reviews now on Apple. So when people look at the podcast, uh, you know, they, they, they see it's a good podcast and as like a, a big audience. So that, that helps and also helps like if you were just type in real estate or Collier's or some keyword, like come up, you know, closer to the top because it has a lot of reviews. So anything you can do, anything you can do, I'd appreciate. Um, anyways, Tyler, why don't, uh, if people haven't heard your story, maybe just give like a brief overview who you are, what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and thanks for having me back again. Um, I'm a executive vice president with Collier's. I run our Midwestern apartment practice out of Chicago. Uh, I'm in about 15 states in the Midwest from uh, Oklahoma to Ohio, Arkansas to Minnesota. Uh, and then I've got a business partner who operates in the Southeast in the Mid-Atlantic and then runs our national business as well. Awesome. Um, and we've done uh, a little over 3 billion in sales over the last, uh, you know, call it 15, 16 months. Nice. Yeah. That's, that's big volume. Was yeah. That, it was all like, it's not uh, growing anymore. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say was that that was all uh, 12 months ago. <laughs> yeah. No, I, you know what? It's been, it's been a tough year. You know, people keep talking about the, you know, are we going to have a hard or soft landing? Are we going to be in a recession or not? 
Um, and I've been joking with my team that the multifamily recession has been going on for the last six, six to eight months. Um, but we, we've probably got, we've, we've been on a hot streak lately. I put a deal under contract this morning, which is exciting. Uh, a nice value add deal, very contentious negotiation. Um, but we're, we've probably done, you know, uh, 300 million in sales this year, which is, you know, I, you know, 10 years ago, you and I talking, it would have been like the, you know, the greatest thing ever. It's just with the, the market and the change in the last year and a half. I mean, it's been, um, it's been night and day different. Um, and everything's tough right now. Yeah, it is. And I, I think, um, I mean, yeah, that's still a lot of volume. I mean, just the markets we cover. We, we feel really good about it. Um, but, you know, with all the movement in the rate environment and SBF and, you know, there's there's a lot of nervous equity out there. Um, and that's that's really been the biggest change that we've seen as it was, you know, a year ago or two years ago. You know, you could throw any deal out there and probably get a lot of subscribers uh, to, to pro provide equity. Um, and uh, and I'll give an example of this later. But, you know, the, the all the institutions are gone. Um, all of our deals right now, there's practically no institutional equity uh, available whatsoever. I've heard that. Yeah. Because I, I just spoke to someone who was like, yeah, above $5 million, the market's still really strong. And I was like, well, not, yes, but once you get to about $40 million, it just really starts dropping off because yeah. all those family offices, private equity funds, whatnot, they're looking at real estate equity going, I don't think this, this isn't, uh, Returns not very great right now for the risk. I mean, sadly, you can make 12, 13, 14% doing pref equity. Why take on the uh, common equity risk? Yeah. If, if, you're, if you're a family office where I'm investing in everything, I got my tech investments, I got stock market, I'm in debt funds, I'm in equity, I'm in you know, I'm private real estate, hedge funds, private equity. And then you just go, yeah, this makes a pro forma 15% mm -hmm. IRR, but I can just do debt and make 12. All that institutional equity wants to be on the credit side of the business right now, doing debt, uh, or you know, if it is equity, it's pref equity. Um, you know, I, I had a call this morning with a large national developer who's got a couple of great sites they're trying to capitalize, and you know, they need a twenty, thirty million dollar check, um, and don't really want to go out and raise it a you know a million dollars at a time. Um, so. You know, it's there are a handful of groups out there that are still providing equity in larger chunks. But, you know, a great example on the buy side would be we just launched a, a deal in um, in Greensboro, North Carolina, about, you know, I guess, 45 days ago. Had about as much action on that as we've had in anything over the last couple of years. We got 46 offers on this deal. Nice. Um, and we did not have one single institutional equity group bid on it. Uh, they were all family offices, all private capital, and you know half the buyer pool uh, I've never heard of before. You know, and wow. and so that that's been a little bit of an interesting change in our business is when you know as a broker. You know, we have to try to mitigate our risks of our clients uh, in these transactions and vet through buyers. And, you know, sometimes people emerge who might be the buyer, but you have no idea who they are, what their track record is. Um, and so it's been kind of, it's actually been kind of fun to figure that out and vet through that a little bit. Um, but it's it's been a challenge and you have to stick your neck out as a broker when you make a recommendation to, to go with someone.
what size is this deal? Like in dollars, the Greensboro? It, it was, uh, I think it was a $35 million deal. Uh, it's going to go for like $6 million over ask, uh, which is crazy. But it, it, but it was priced right. And, you know, as we move into this conversation, um, we're going to have a, we, we have a lot of listings we're about to launch. Um, and we've been having a lot of tough conversations with a lot of sellers. And the smart money and the smart sellers are pricing their deals right kind of letting the masses come to them and letting them bid it up at the end where, you know, there, there's a lot of sellers that have a, you know, a, a debt or a certain math equation they have to solve to, to get their, their returns to exit these deals. And a lot of them don't realize that they're not going to get those returns and they should probably sell it now and not wait six to 12 months. Um, because, you know, I don't think the market's going to be better in six to 12 months personally. Um, yeah, so I'm kind of curious what your take is on that, you know, whether, you know, if you had a, you know, gun to your head, you're obviously going to have to force a decision. But, you know, if you have a little flexibility, you know, we, we've been kind of surprised that, that some people have been selling uh, right now. Yeah, well, it's tough to take the uh, the L, as they say, I guess. But um, if, if the options were. I mean, I think if you're selling a year from now or right now, I mean, basically, I think the prices will be essentially the same. So you're you're underwriting, or you're you're looking at your what are your returns? Well, if you're going to sell it for the same price a year from now, yeah, obviously your returns are lower mm -hmm. if you wait a year. So that so I I would just sell now, um, and I don't really see what would make the prices be meaningfully higher. So to, if anything, there's more risk to the downside mm -hmm. in the next year. In the in a three-year window i can see somewhere around year two i think things are going to turn around where I, I agree with that where we have developments dropping off a cliff to your point where no one can get their deals capitalized and then the ones that could they look at oh this is how much more my interest costs are now now my deal doesn't pencil and then the deals aren't happening so then there's going to be a supply drop off and in these markets where there's still a demand tidal wave like where I'm looking, Phoenix mm -hmm. and Dallas and Austin, these places, there's a lot of building right now, but I don't think there's really much could be behind that. So they need to work through the near-term supply, but they still have a lot of people moving there. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, like three years from now, I think it could actually look pretty good where you're going to have really good supply demand scenario where rents could be running in terms of the increases, uh, running up a lot. And then you have, uh, and interest rates will be coming down. What does it look like exactly? I don't know. If I had to guess, I'd say rates are in the fours. Let's say four and a half to high fours. Mm -hmm. Probably if I had to be more specific, four and a half. Because I think like in 2018, the Fed was raising rates and rates got into the low fives for smaller loans, right around five for bigger loans. And then, you know, if when things were in the three percents, it felt kind of artificial almost, mm -hmm. right? Like we're doing all these things to get rates low. And sort of seems like the natural, like new normal for rates is like kind of fours, five ish yeah. kind of thing. I'm talking about right now, first mortgage stabilized like a Fannie Freddie loan. I'm not talking about debt funds or, or like a normal bank loan on a stabilized deal, I'd say. But I'm not talking about CMBS rates or some of these other things that are a little different. Life insurance companies, life co loans probably would be a little bit lower than that because they're lending lower loan to values on newer, nicer stuff. So obviously they should be cheaper. I, I would definitely agree with that. Um, you know, the the main impetus for my opinion, I guess, is, 
you know, last time I came on here, I gave my, you know, bold prediction. I think there's going to be some problems in the apartment space. And I, I still do think that. And we've actually started to see some REO uh, uh, come come through by by the way of listings. Um, and so and, and it's the same story over and over with, you know, uh, bridge debt um, effectively, you know, putting these borrowers into a position where they're they, they don't have an out. Um, and you know, I, I think the challenge I have in making recommendations with clients right now is I think there's, you know, you don't ever want to be the seller in a market where there's a, a negative snowball effect of values being, you know, think about Chicago right now. So I've, I've got a high rise on the market in the Gold Coast. Um, we are, you know, close to an actionable number. Um, the price of this deal is kind of crazy. It's 50 a door under what I would expect it to be. $50,000. Yes. 50,000 a unit under, um, and it's a hundred, you know, 60 unit property. And why is that? Um, well, the Seneca just traded, uh, for a similar discount, about 20 or 28% discount from the last purchase. Yeah. I saw the article just. I saw the headline, huge loss, mm -hmm. basically. <laughs> huge loss. There's been a number of similar headlines, whether, you know, the class A uh, product that's been, you know, sold at a loss in this market has been funds for selling assets to either uh, close out their fund and book returns and they don't care, uh, or effectively harvest some losses as well and free up cash to, to go uh, redeploy uh, in, you know, uh, a year or two. And so, um, you know, what you don't want to do is be, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered and people who are clinging on to this hope that, you know, we're magically going to get back to the environment that we're in. Um, you know, Chicago real estate has just started to get, uh, sold at the basis to which the capital is willing to pay for it. Um, it's, it's a market correction. Uh, I, I actually think the Chicago market's more stable than a lot of other places in the country. I think sure. I said so. that before because, you know, you didn't have two and a half caps or three and a half caps in Chicago for the last five years. And you have a lot of long term owners, a lot of fixed rate borrowers like that's And the average. Yeah, the average hold period for properties. If I had to guess, it's probably triple the length. Yeah. It would be in Florida or Texas or Arizona where, I mean, people own property for like two years there. Yeah. And here it's like a lot of 10 year deals or people's business plans and some people just owning stuff like for generations. So, and, and, you know, and so, and the rent growth, I'm curious kind of what's going on in this building um, that you obviously own. Uh, I mean, the rent growth that we're seeing has been pretty substantial. The fundamentals are really good. And, you know, at the end of the day, there aren't a lot of cities that can be replicated like this. Um, and so, you know, where, where I'm more wary in my business is, you know, Kansas City or St. Louis or Kentucky, or um, there's a lot of places where people got a little over their skis in 2021 and paid, you know, 150 basis point cap rate lower than they should have because it was a competitive situation. They put three year Freddie floating bridge debt on it. Their they their rate cap expired. You know their um, their I/O ran out, and now 
they're going into a market where I talked to someone from, uh, well, it's funny that I'm even going to say my competitor at Northmark, um, and who, uh, who runs their group. And, um, you know, he thinks treasuries are going to 5%. Um, and so if, if this environment stays, uh, elevated through 2025, you've got a lot of maturities coming. There's a lot of maturities next year. And once these guys have to liquidate, they're going to do it quickly. And and so if you go to take a property, if you wait six months or eight months and that happens, you're you're going to probably sell for a, a larger loss then than you would selling it right now. Yeah, that's um, interesting. Yeah. And I think to the people that are really poised to get hurt, like it's yeah, those markets that aren't the ones that are just like booming from like a rent growth and uh, like on the demand side. But yeah, these deals were selling for three and a half, four caps in markets that had no business being that at least like with Phoenix, like people would look at that and you go, okay, my taxes don't adjust on sale and I can raise my rents 20% to this. That's what the market rent is right now. Not, I need the market to improve. So you do that and you're at a five cap in like mm -hmm. two seconds. So like even the deals that we bought, like we're all stabilized north of a five cap and all but one has fixed rate debt in the threes. And actually one of them is at four and a quarter. Mm -hmm. So like all those are actually cash flow positive. Obviously if like we bought them before prices adjusted. So um, like our business plan is to ride out the loan term we have, mm -hmm. we have five year fixed. So in a seven year fixed on one. So let's, we're just going to ride it out and it'd be a lot different in five or six years. So those, you know, um, those anyways, we insulated ourselves cause they were value mm -hmm. add deals. And we had loan term, but imagine you did neither of those things. You bought a stabilized four cap, three year term, and a floating rate. You're in a two, lot of trouble. Two year interest rate cap, interest rate, you know, interest rates raise, snap your fingers, cap rates in Kansas City, five, six, what is it now? Yep. And great segue into the, you know, the, there was an article this week uh, in the real deal, uh, and uh, we, we, you know, I knew that a lot of this was coming, and there's some larger other names that weren't mentioned, but. You know, the, the article effectively was talking about how some of these large national syndicators went from, you know, half a million or yeah, half a billion in assets to seven billion in assets in like two years. Um, they bought all this product um, and and exactly, you know, what we're saying is happening, you know, 20 to 30 percent of their portfolio now is in dire straits. They're trying to do capital calls. They're handing the keys back on deals. Um, and, and everybody knows that there's blood in the water. Um, and so, you know, I just think to myself, um, logically, if that's happening to those seven groups, which, you know, I won't name them on this, um, there's a lot of other people out there that have a lot of problems too. And, and on the ground, we, uh, I've turned into a problem solver. My business partners turned into a problem solver and we have clients that are, you know, uh, need to, you know, free up cash very quickly and deals that were supposed to be sold in two or three years are being sold now to do that. And so, um, and, and those are the smart people getting in front of this and not, you know, sitting back like, oh, hey, broker, why would I ever sell this for a six cap today? It's it. This is like a four, a four, nine or a five cap all day. And so we're we're still having trouble with 
sellers moving down to the market. Um, you know, and and so it's all I can do is you know give my honest opinion to someone and and make them a recommendation and. It's kind of like you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. So, yeah. And I think, too, in that article, I know which one you're talking about in the real deal. I thought I, I read most of it. I thought only four groups were referenced. There, there were seven. OK, there were four in the picture. Yeah. And I remember reading and going like, I mean, some of this is a little bit speculation where there was a announcement like one of them's doing capital calls. Mm-hmm. But like, that's not a surprise. You're all in at the your interest rate is with your interest rate cap, it's in the sixes or sevens, mm-hmm. depending on when you did this, you're stabilizing these deals at five caps. Of course you need to add money. Yeah. The thing is at least the ones that were in the photo, they do value add deals. So I remember reading it like, well, like we'll see, you know, if they can keep them till things normalize, at least they stabilize that respectable cap rates. The people that are in just the most trouble are the ones where it was, there was no value add. Yeah. I just, like I guess I don't want to say I because I never bought this. They just bought a deal that made four percent unlevered, so a four cap, no upside. The market shifts to a six. Okay, quick math: your value is down two thirds, right? Or sorry, down a third at four to a six. And then now you also interest rates are way up, so you're sizing to a way lower loan. You maybe they finance that seventy five percent loan to cost. Like now they need to add a ton of money. Mm-hmm. It's not even worth the debt if you did it 75% loan to cost because it dropped a third. Like that's not, that's that's a tough predicament. Well, have you, you've been, you and I are the same age. We've been doing this for about the same amount of time. I mean, when have you heard of people writing checks at uh, closing tables for refinances? Um, I mean, we, we've been seeing that a lot where, you know, we have a, a client trying to make a decision and the decision, you know, they're like, oh, we're going to go. We got these debt options. We're going to go this route. And then they come back to you and they're like, yeah, those debt options didn't work. We had to put, you know, two, we had to write a check, a $2 million check just to refinance our, our deal. So we want to sell it now. Um, you know, it, it's, it's we're, we're having a capital markets problem. It's not a fundamentals. I, sure. Are there some people out there that took a little too much risk? got a little too aggressive, grew too fast, and maybe should have slowed down, but the equity was pouring in and they were being pushed to to do more deals. And you and I probably would have done a similar thing, maybe a little more, um, you know, carefully. Um, but, you know, it's a capital markets problem. If the Fed doesn't raise interest rates in the aggressive manner that they did, uh, I don't. I don't think that we'd be having this same conversation, and I think that the market bails a lot of those guys out. Um, but that's not what happened. And unless the Fed or these banks start to make some meaningful changes in their policies, uh, I, I'm seeing them move to liquidate and not try to kick the can down the road because the banks are scared. That just like the equity right now is afraid to, to deploy into new deals, go talk to any lender out there right now. They're, even if you have a really great property in the best location in Austin, there's still a little bit of hesitancy. I mean, maybe that's a You're bad example. You're talking about banks? Right I'm talking now, right? about just, you know, the, the yes, the, the lending environment right now. 
Um, yeah, because they're not getting the loan payoffs they used to. So they're they're not like recycling the same loan dollars and they're going, okay, so we're going to increase our book of loans at a time where we're worried about being the next Silicon Valley yeah. bank where people are going to yank deposits. Like, why would we make this loan that's not worth the risk right now? Almost at any interest rate, we need to just hold on to our deposits. Correct. If anything, start having the bankers call, seeing people want to make deposits. Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna, you know, the dirty little secret that I'm, and you know, I'd be curious if you're feeling the same thing. I mean, we are either entering or already in a credit lockout in the market. Um, That that that's already been it's been happening since April, quite honestly, Um, and it's been getting slowly and progressively worse. Um, You know, thank God for the agencies and for HUD. Um, but like a problem I have right now, which is a weird problem is if I encounter a value add deal, even if it's a value add deal that I really want to sell and I've been chasing for a long time, it's really hard to get those deals done because if your seller wants, you know, if you have to pay a low going in cap rates, that's, and you know, you're going to get to a six in a year or two. You know, it shakes out to usually your your uh, you got to your LTVs in the fifties. Like you're going to do a fifty-five to sixty percent deal um, if it's not ninety-five percent stabilized and fitting into that agency box. And so, um, for us doing BOVs and pricing uh, deals, it's it's been it's actually made this a lot more difficult than it was before. Um, for sure. Yeah. And before we started recording, you had asked, how do you, how do you even finance a value add multifamily deal today? And I started answering. I was like, actually, let's just questions a broker should never ask. Oh no. Well he, yeah. (laughs) What's our our strategy? (laughs) Um, what's our strategy in case there's anything like new he can share, but it's, it's, I doubt it's a new, but like really the best execution we see is you're doing, you're doing a fanny conventional five year fixed, um, and you're you're renovating out of cash, mm-hmm. uh, out of equity you've raised, to be more specific. So to your point, what does that look like in the markets we are tracking? The Phoenixes, the Austins, the Dallases. It's you know give or take. You're putting forty five percent down, forty percent on the purchase, then renovation out of equity raised in cash flow. Um, you know, but there's no cash flow while you're renovating. So really, just out of what you've raised. So you know, for a round number, it's yeah, fifty percent debt, fifty percent equity. So what does that mean to get it to size out respectably? Like you need to be at a like roughly a five percent cap rate going in day one on a value add mm-hmm. deal, because then you're going to put this mid to high five percent agency loan in it. So you need to be pretty close to the debt rate, and then depends on the market. I mean, Phoenix right now feedback we got was assume the day one cap rate's equivalent to the interest rate on a value add deal on the agency. So let's say five and a half in Phoenix. In Dallas, they'd say going in five cap day one, unlike eighties construction value add, let's say. Um, if it's really old or needs like a deeper value add, it's a lot, it's, it's higher. And then if it's like a two thousands deal, that's, you know, it could, could be lower in terms of the cap rate anyways. And then Austin, we're that there's so there's a lot less activity. So that's, um, you know, that we're still figuring out, but it's inside of Dallas, like it's the too many uh, hmm. jargon. The, the cap rates are lower than Dallas, obviously in Austin um, for a million reasons. And usually what's been going on is about 50 basis points lower is what we were told and what we've, what we've saw as hmm. well. So what does that all mean? It's 
everyone's got more or less the same strategy on financing it. It's more or less yeah. just who who needs to buy, if you will. And so what we've saw so far is we haven't really saw that blood in the streets type pricing. Like we've saw distressed deals sell. We bid on one in Dallas. We bid on one in Tempe, Arizona, for example, recently. The Tempe one, I think, like had, a bank distressed deal. Oh uh, no, or, owner, uh, owner, uh, owner the Tempe one. The guy, it's just a a guy essentially that owns it. He's got a dozen or so deals, and he's they're all in the scenario we're talking about. You know, bought it at a three cap, stabilized it at a five, so he's not losing money per se, but he can't refi because interest rates are pushing six yeah. percent now, and he'd have to add too much money, and he owns a dozen deals. So who has the money to add? $2 million to every deal and pay your loan down. He doesn't, or at least this one he wants to sell because of that. He doesn't, he'd rather sell yeah. than add. So technically, I guess that is distressed. Like he yeah. he wants, he needs to sell it. The problem is. I, I call that a uh, seller under duress. Okay. So he's under duress. And then, but the problem, if you will, for like as a buyer is I have, I'm underwriting barely any market rent growth. I'm underwriting these higher interest rates. I'm not assuming cap rates go down in my like underwriting i'm assuming they stay the same or go up a little um because that i mean that's like underwriting red flag mm -hmm. one is like trending your cap rate down so we don't do that but then the problem is transaction volumes down 80 percent in phoenix so this thing gets like a dozen offers yeah it gets mauled yeah and it doesn't and it goes multiple rounds and it gets bid to a price where we look at it and it's on our underwriting the levered irr and it was eight <laughs> percent and you're doing value add risk, you yeah. know, in a, in so, a volatile market. By the way, yeah. I, I have to interrupt for a second. So I have a deal um, that is operationally challenged uh, that we underwrote recently. And my analyst and I were like trying to figure this out. And we're like, how how are we going to put that on this? You know, our, our deck guys, you know, didn't really like it. Um, and the you know the you, you had to put like i think it was like a 50 percent uh you know cash in kind of deal um and we decided to underwrite to unlevered returns um and okay. and to, to get to where we needed to be because you know th there are balance sheet buyers in the market um i like your response uh with the value add because that's what everybody we're doing value add deals with is doing um, and the fact of the matter is most people understand that in two years or three years after you do that, and if you get hit it at the right time, you're going to do really well on that refi and on the back end of it. And so, um, it, it's just, um, it, we're, we're just in a, in such a weird place in the market. And the sad thing about all of this is it's, it's kind of artificial. It's been artificially created by the US government. So. Yeah, I mean, your average person on Main Street and your average voter, though, they don't own any multifamily deals. No. And it, like it, it's impacted us, you know, heavily because we're on the tip of the spear in this capital intensive business where you're borrowing money. And so like for us, it's it's been pain. It's been painful. But for, you know, people on Main Street, what's been painful is, you know, inflation. Yeah. So well, they, I mean, they do keep call. You know, I keep reading and hearing the word you know rich session uh is what's happening and and that you know effectively you know for a lot of people who are you know middle income or below earners 
things are going fine. They probably refied their house. They probably have a couple thousand dollars extra in their pocket every month. Um, and it's the people who own assets and have, you know, invested in things in, you know, a artificial market for, I guess there's no other way to put it. It was an artificial market. Rate, rate, should, have, rate should have never been at zero. Um, and at some point, those asset prices have to get unwound to a certain degree. Um, and that, that's really what I see is happening is, um, you know, the smart put money put fixed rate debt on it, on, the, on their uh, properties. They're sitting back and pretty happy that they did that. They don't have any real pressures. Um, and they're waiting to, for the time to, to strike and, and jump back into the market. Um, and you know the, the biggest challenge that we're seeing overall outside of the debt is expenses. Like ex expenses have been increasing across the board pretty dramatically. Um, and, and people still haven't totally changed their underwriting standards on you know what your expense situation is, especially insurance. Um, we talked about insurance a little bit last time. You know, even in, you know, even in Chicago, you know, or, or anywhere in a place where you wouldn't expect your insurance costs to go up, they're going up 25%. Um, and yeah, ours went up in, uh, in the Midwest stuff we got. And then with the Phoenix, ours went up 12%. Yeah. I've heard so Texas that, is really bad. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, and you know, they have a lot of hail, mm -hmm. uh, and other things flooding depending where you are. I mean, Houston is along with Florida is like barely insurable at this point. Yeah. But yeah, that's been where, you know, even in those markets where there's not a lot of losses, like what happens in Arizona, like, yeah, you know, nothing, nothing for that, but no water. It's still your, there, there, the cities that are there are, are fine with their water. Yeah. I can send you stuff if, if you ever <laughs> need know, it. I know. <laughs> it's these outlying places where they're trying to pull groundwater that they don't have more of or something, but, um, they, they don't, uh, but, so we have like what's called like safe properties. We're not in California where there's earthquakes or Florida where there's hurricanes, and we're up twelve. Mm -hmm. I mean these places where yeah. I think you had some, something with the Florida deal where it was like went up from five hundred to two thousand yeah, a door I, uh, or something. Or, I mean I I just it's it's not my client. It's my partner's client and my partner's deal. But um, but you know we were actually just talking about that deal. I, we're we're about to get the listing on it. Um, it's a very large transaction. I think the rent growth on it is like they're up 70% and they are going to effectively sell this for a break even because their insurance costs have, have, you know, quadrupled their labor costs are up. Uh, they've just had expense creep everywhere. Um, and even though they've done everything that they, you know, put out in their thesis to, you know, to execute this business plan for this property, you know, it, there's been other forces that have, you know, uh, crept into their returns. And, um, you know, again, it's, it's like that real deal story. I, I think it's just, it's funny to me to a certain degree because I'm out in the market. We're, we're pretty active still. Um, like we probably have 25 listings that we're launching in July, uh, which is a lot for right now. Um, when, you know, a, a lot of the, the rest of the market has been so busy. And so, you know, there's a lot more, I just think there's a lot more problems out there with a lot more groups. Um, and nobody wants to talk about it and, and no one, no one's openly ready to say, 
we got a problem. Um, you know, my expenses were underwritten at 40% and now they're 50%. Uh, my rent growth was supposed to be 12% and now it's 4%. Um, you know, I still think there's a shortage of uh, apartment housing. There's plenty of demand and really the supply side of things in some places is aggressive. Otherwise it's, it's not, it's, it's just, there's, there, there are things that people got a little too exuberant and optimistic about. And if, you know, what's what I was taught, the number one rule in doing a real estate deal is protect your downside risk and, you know, underwrite for the worst case scenario. Uh, and I think if you do that, you're going to be much less inclined to, to make mistakes. But but there's emotion in this business. People get, you know, in, uh, you know, really heavily emotionally involved in these deals and, you know, trying to get, you know, in a competitively bid situation, you know, people are crazy. They pull out all sorts of stops to, to try to get you to pick them as the buyer and probably make some irrational decisions and cut some corners. And some people pay, will pay for it and others will probably get away with it a little bit. But like, what's the craziest thing you've seen someone do in the best and final? Cause I, what's funny, this is why I never buy any properties uh, in these scenarios. I just look at the computer and go, it doesn't make enough money. Well, next well so, so this Carolina deal wasn't, I'm not the lead broker on it. Um, I was getting calls from people, you know, trying to take this thing off the deal or off the market from the second that it was put on the market. And we got, like I said, we got 46 offers, which I don't remember anything in 2021 that we ever got that much action for. What what would the day um, one cap rate be on this? I think it was like say? a five and a half. It was like a legit five and a half gap. And then why are people all over it? Cause you can stay it, it was like seven you know, or what's the yeah, pure value add deal, you know, huge upside. Okay. Um, and so, you know, people are, you know, offering to, you know, I don't know. It's like, you know, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll fly, come pick you up in Chicago in the private jet. We'll fly down there, tour, take you out to dinner. You know, it's, it's, it's just anything that they can do to get in, in, in. Um, and as far as the answer to your question, I'd have to think about that. Um, yeah, but okay. like, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's like why pe people don't like to lose. And, um, I think for a lot of the buyers, it's kind of a sport uh, to a certain degree. And, a and, and quite honestly, a lot of these people have been the bridesmaids, uh, meaning they're you know, second or third place on a lot of deals for a long time because you know, going back to 2021 and 2020, you know, there are a lot of big institutions in the market that just, you know, there was no way you were gonna compete with them because their cost of capital was so low. So I think there's been a little bit of pent up from frustration from uh, the private capital side of things where a lot of these guys are like, oh man, like now's our time to actually get some of these deals done because all the institutions are out of the market. So- And, um, and these are, where do, where do they get their equity from? The people that would be- uh, It's a lot of it's friends and family. Um, and, you know, some of it is, uh, you know, family businesses where they started, you know, it's a, you know, either the patriarch or an uncle or something started the business and they, um, you know, just slowly 
Um, look, it's not good for my business at all, but the people that I know that have the most money that have amassed incredible wealth don't ever sell their properties. They, you know, buy, they started buying one property, they refied it three years later, they buy two properties, they refi those a couple years later, they buy, you know, they, they du keep doubling. Yeah. And now they're, you know, they own 30,000 units and, you know, some of the equities, friends and family, but personally they own 10,000 units, you know? And so- Because one thing that's interesting- They feed the beast. If you, do, if you just play the math out, people are like, how does this even happen? Let's say you bought a deal for $2 million. You put your down payment down. Let's say you own it for 25 years. In that time period, you pay the loan off and it doubles, let's say. You have $4 million now. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, if this has been done for generations. And that's assuming you did nothing. There's no cash flow. You never refied and bought a second one. Like, this is, you can make a lot of money slowly yeah. in real estate. And so, yeah, just curious, because I guess for me, I'm always looking this, we need to hit a certain return. It gets bit up beyond that, and we just are, we're done. Well, and so, so they're just not, I mean, they're, they they have uh, I mean you could say they're less disciplined you could say they have a lot more flexibility or it's their own money, but because that's so interesting. If you so and, and sorry to interrupt, but like I also have this personal view that like there are certain groups out there that that can afford to overpay for deals and and kind of don't care if they overpay for deals. Um, what does that even like? Why I guess what? How does uh, how can they afford to? Because they are going to own it for a long time. Okay. And so, you know, and, and so whatever happens in the next two to three years, they don't care. So they can just pay the price. It'll be worth in five years now. If they have they to were do gonna a buy high, it in if, five years anyways, yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. They, they want control of the asset. Um, and you know, sometimes I'm, I'm let, let's also be honest. There's a lot of egos in this business. And when I was saying, you know, there's it's competitive, people don't want to lose. And, you know, it's pardon my French, but like it's, you know, and I, I can't name any names, but it's like, you know, if you're talking to someone and they're asking you who else is in the in the, you know, in the best and final, you know, and they ask you a direct question is so and so in the best and final and you have a pregnant pause or you don't want to answer it. They're like, oh, that motherfucker, like, you know, <laughs> and, and so it's. It's just uh, there's there are rivalries yeah. in this business too, um, and and honestly, it's what I like about this is it's fun to get things. I mean, you don't ever want to be a broker and walk into, you know, you limp into your best and final or something. Um, having a robust process and and all this you know fun interaction and fervor about these deals is really what is hopefully fun for other brokers. And it's kind of like the thrill that, you know, other than the thrill of getting, you know, the deal and the thrill of the hunts, you know, I like the the best and finals are, are exciting usually because you never really know what's going to happen. That's so interesting because to my mentality on these best, on like the best and finals and kind of what you're talking about is so the person like that's, I don't really view, I mean, I, they, they are awarded the deal and they won, but I, I don't think I don't feel like they're a winner if the price is bad, if you will. Now you are, because at, at a certain level, if you can close the deal, anybody could just pay the most. So like, what did you win? You just were the person willing to pay the most. 
Yeah, I, I, so, I mean, listen, we we have such, you know, I, I was thinking about what you asked me earlier. I mean, we've had situations where, you know, you, you award the deal, the second place guy gets super pissed, calls your client directly and tries to make a deal. And sometimes they actually does make the deal with your client directly. And then we have to go back to the guy you awarded the deal to and be like, oh, by the way, like someone came in and paid $2 million more just because they wanted it. Um, you know, from a metric perspective, like every everyone's underwriting, you know, differently. A lot of people underwrite on a caching, you know, they look at their cash and cash or their IRR. Um, and I just, uh, I just think a lot of it is building wealth for their kids and their families and creating that massive wealth vehicle. Um, and everyone knows that it's a good time to invest in apartments, even if the capital markets are not in a great place. Um, I mean, would I be buying like 50s and 60s apartment buildings right now? Probably not, because they just are pretty old vintage, right? And things break and they get more costly. Um, but in the next 30 years, I don't, I don't think there's gonna be a major surplus in housing anywhere and I think this whole housing affordability, you know, crisis that everyone, it's not a crisis if you just let people build more housing units. No, so we need, we need to curtail housing. And this is these greedy developers making <laughs> all this money we need. So yeah, no, that's, that's right. Like, right. Rent control, these things, it creates less housing and that keeps the prices high. Yeah. You, if you had something to incentivize building, I mean, New York city has some sort of tax abatement thing that went forever. Mm -hmm or not forever, but the program was in existence for a long time that created a lot of the condos and apartments getting built. They don't have that now, plus interest rates are high. So they're they're running into like a buzzsaw of no new supply. Yeah. And they could have they could have helped themselves by continuing this program, they, they didn't. Um, so yeah, no, I, I hear you that we could talk all day about that where that's, um, yeah. And actually that I, the, the one shout out that I will uh, give is I, I just toured, um, the uh, the row uh, in the West Loop, if if you're familiar with that, related just built this project. Project. Um, yeah, I saw it being built. Is it's an up. incredible okay. building. They did it. They did a great job. Um, but the most fascinating thing about it is um, related, I guess. For and and I wonder if this is the program uh, that you're talking about. I guess in New York, there's an eighty twenty uh, program, and it's you know to build eighty percent. Uh, market rate deals, and then 20% is at 60 to 80% of AMI, which is you know area median income, um, which effectively discounts those rents. At 60% AMI, your rents are a third of effectively what the market generally. Yeah, and speaking. folks that rent those have to meet certain Qualify, uh, yeah. yeah income limitations. And and so just I guess the example would be if you're if the area median income is a hundred grand, you know, it would be only qualifying for people that make sixty thousand dollars could live in those in those units for X, you know, price. Um, and so this related building that just got built, uh, they're twelve hundred square foot units, which are pretty big. Uh, they're getting four seventy-five a foot on average, um, wow. and they are trying to roll out more of these because in New York it's been a wildly successful experiment because they have effectively put uh, you know middle-income and lower-income earners who might work at the you know 
grocery store or the restaurants or drive Uber or whatever, and they no longer have to drive in 45 minutes, they actually can live in the neighborhood that they work in. Um, and it, it, it actually makes for uh, a much better uh, and well-diversified market, if you will. So um, hopefully they can get a couple more of those penciled. The problem is getting it penciled. I mean, you know, if you have 475 rents, it's probably maybe it, it might even still not be easy to do. Um, yeah, because you're not getting 475 a foot on 20% of your units, no. but they cost the same price to build, the same price to operate as the ones that you're getting. So it's but the city's giving you subsidies now with tax incentives on a real estate tax basis, and and so I, I think things like that are pretty thoughtful because you know at least the city's helping the developer build the units, get them on site um and and you know populate an area with i mean look at this the west loop fulton market isn't meant to just be for like rich super rich people right and actually if it was just a bunch of super rich people it'd probably be a horrible place so right um you know nothing against super rich people but um so i i, I think it's you know it we don't we could go on for like days about this um but i think it's a it's an interesting it's worked really well in New York. It's working in Chicago and, uh, you know, places like LA, uh, who are doing the exact opposite should probably try to, um, figure it out. Um, has there been any, there's no rent control conversations in Arizona, are there? No, no, there's not, uh, not, and not, and yeah, not in any of the places we're looking. Yeah. It's interesting too. That just reminded me of all that expense conversation we had. I mean, I know everyone just loves to beat up on Phoenix. It's like, a People were jealous. I've held back. No, no, no. They, they, uh, they're jealous. They missed out. Um, when, when it, it's a great, it's a great market and it, it's volatile with the rents, like, you know, Phoenix and Vegas and Tampa and Atlanta, a lot of there's, it's up and down, you mm -hmm. know, where Chicago and, you know, a lot of these places are a lot more stable. So I get it. But what's interesting when we're talking about the expenses, insurance, obviously with how little losses there are way more stable than these other markets. Property tax assessed values. There's a five percent per year cap, even when there's a sale of the property. So you have so much certainty on the expenses mm -hmm. that, um, I mean, I'd personally I'd take that over like, let's say Florida. You have um, like that's that's a great market fundamentally, but you have a lot of the same stuff Phoenix and these other places have going for it. But you have the costs are just out yeah. of control. The taxes are going up, the insurance, the labor. Which is also a cycle too though, right? Like the, you know, the a lot of people don't think of it like this, but you know, we're in a bad insurance cycle. There were a lot of, you know, catastrophic storms and, and events that caused large losses for a lot of these insurance companies. And so now, you know, the lag period is we're getting, you know, people are getting hit pretty substantially. Um, but you know, it'll come back down eventually. Uh, I don't disagree with you. I mean, you know, I, I think that, uh, I, I always joke with people like, that's why I live in Chicago. I mean, there's no, you know, what real natural disaster is there up here? Tornadoes. Um, maybe, carjackings, maybe, but, but, but no, it's, um, you know, stability of your, uh, expenses is, you know, probably something a lot of people don't really look at and stability of your labor. Um, and it's, it, there's nothing probably 
more dangerous to a uh, just any kind of real estate deal than having than miscalculating your expenses, right? Um, you know, even five or ten yeah. percent can can really dramatically affect your your deal. Yeah, I agree. I was taking a sip of water, so I didn't say yeah right yeah. away because <laughs> they, um, yeah, especially. I mean, yeah, we see people can get their deal can go awry from the second they bought it if they underwrite mm -hmm. property taxes wrong or. Uh, you know, never got an insurance quote and we're just using the prior owner's numbers. Yeah. So yeah, no, I can see that. Like, like we haven't talked about, you know, I, I work in some markets that have some real tax problems like uh, Michigan, Ohio, Kentucky. Um, and, you know, like in Kentucky and Ohio, uh, people do something called a drop and swap, which is a entity transfer. Um, and you know, it's interesting to go through one of those deals because as the broker or on the sell side, you know, you're like, oh, just do the drop and swap. You have nothing to worry about. You know, your taxes aren't going to move. It, it effectively shields the, the property from, uh, you know, changing, uh, recording of title. And so it doesn't trigger a tax reassessment. I mean, is the term drop and swap or it's just an entity sale? Well, there's two the different, that, a, a drop. So, and they're, they're the same thing. Um, you know, in a drop and swap, it's a little more complicated. It's like a shell corporations created a closing and they literally take like the entity and drop it into like a new entity effectively. Yeah. Cause um, we, we've did a t couple 1031s where we were combining properties and yeah. did a drop and swap. And now we've come, we've, yeah, it's combined to one entity now, but okay. Yeah. Just, but, but like people have to take a lead, you know, I, I had this deal in Cincinnati you know, where, you know, it was funny because we went to the seller and we're like, hey, you you know, your taxes are either going to get reassessed at 100% or we do a drop and swap and they're not going to move. And the the value difference was was huge. It was like $20 million. Um, and whenever you go to a seller with $20 million spread, they're like, you know, what the hell are you doing here? And it's like, look, you're either going to get full credit or no credit for this. Um, and, and the challenge is if you take that deal to market with the expectation that you're going to get full credit and you don't get full credit, yeah. you know, your taxes can go up half a million dollars or, or more. So yeah, that's a big risk. Like as a buyer, I would just be out on that kind of, on those, those markets. Yeah. I, don't, I wouldn't want to take that gamble where I bought something and all of a sudden, uh, the, the assessor caught wind of the sale somehow. And now I lose $20 million. Yeah. That doesn't sound so good. Not to mention your also inheriting all the liabilities of this uh, other company you're buying too. you know, whatever, if there's a lawsuit or something, a slip and fall like that's now you're picking that up. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's the same reason. I mean, it's the reason why people like Arizona, right? It's the same reason why people like uh, Indiana, Indiana is the same, same way, 2% cap. It's pretty easy to calculate your taxes. I mean, you go to Michigan, and you need like a Harvard degree to figure out what the taxes are uh, on every deal. Um, and so, you know, it's it's interesting how different parts of the city are, or out of the country are so different from a tax uh, and, and bureaucratic perspective. But it also makes sense why the whole, you know, most astute investors are all flocking towards higher growth red states with less regulation and not more regulation. Yeah. And then, I mean, that's where all the jobs and businesses are going. It's a, it's a simple business sometimes where you need people to live in your buildings. Mm -hmm. And so you should go where the people are going. Yeah. Right. That's uh, that's what the guys at Dominium told me when they were expanding <laughs> from Minnesota to the, the South was like, why don't we, um, 
you know, we have 20,000 apartments mostly in the Midwest, but that's where people are. No one, not many people are moving to the Midwest. They're all moving to Arizona and Texas. I think that's changing though. Atlanta and yeah, I mean, it's the, I mean, the country's growing. Uh, I mean, well, it's interesting. I think I looked it up 15 States in the last, uh, I forgot what the time period was. I think 2021 mm-hmm. to 2022 lost population. So it's not growing everywhere. Yeah. But what were you going to say? That was uh, Midwest is growing. Is uh, that, no, um, I, I, the the um, I mean, it's a little slightly off topic, but um, no, I, I we, we've been hearing a lot of rumblings, um, especially in some of these rust belt, you know, cities um, and in Ohio, particularly um, that like there there's a lot of there's a resurgence of manufacturing and and tech. Uh, in this country, and a lot of it is being relocated into the Midwest, into you know, like Kansas City and uh, Columbus uh, are two great burgeoning markets with uh, a lot of tech moving in and tech manufacturing moving in, um, and it's you know it's because the labor is cheap, uh, you know, when compared to the the coasts. And the housing's cheap, so people can, you know, their employees can live a good life, get a good wage, uh, and not have to pay fifteen hundred dollars a foot uh, to live in Silicon Valley. Um, you know, where you're like making a million dollars a year, and you can barely afford to go to the grocery store. You know, it's it, obviously being facetious, but like, I mean, pretty close. I mean, I look, you go on Zillow, and it's like it feels like an average house in the Bay is like four million dollars. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, where you go to Kansas City, I mean, you know, you could probably get a, a house for half a million dollars in Kansas City that's a couple thousand square feet and has a yard and it's probably a good school system. So, yeah, no, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I can see that. And I, yeah, it's, it's so market by market. Yeah. But I still think, I mean, primarily the like growth the- is not, I mean, you, you, and, and I'm not trying to argue against the growth in Arizona or Texas or even Florida or the Carolinas. Um, but it's better than it was. And you were going from a place where you had GM plants and manufacturing, you know, going to China and, and other countries. And it's, and we've slowly, you know, but, you know, because I have to be involved a little bit in like the micro economy and all these places, um, it's, it's been slowly coming back and that that's a really good thing for America. Yeah, it in is. In general. Yeah, and it's not great for the country if everyone moves to Florida and the South either. Like we need, you know, it's it's better if <laughs> people yeah. are spread out. I mean, it keeps well keep the pricing less crazy of things. Um, and it's also just so odd how, um, from like a weather standpoint, where like aren't we supposed to be? I mean, global warming, and eventually we're gonna run out of water, and we need the Great Lakes and all this, but the states that are booming the most it's like the top ones it's like i think <laughs> what is it like utah's number one or something and then it's like you know it's florida it's texas it's arizona it's vegas like i yeah what about global warming and water and uh the oceans rising and whatnot like is everyone gonna move down there and then in uh 50 years be like now we need to move back to chicago <laughs> I, th- I think most people f- feel like it's a longer term problem that they don't have to deal with and their kids will deal with it or or whatnot which is probably not the right answer um they're gonna have to figure out something yeah Um, i mean but people can also invent solutions i mean some you know too like there's so um and stuff goes in cycles like obviously 
we're warming up the planet. Anyone who stood in a parking lot like knows like yeah. paving everything is adding heat. But you know, it's is it somewhat of a cycle? What is it? But it's just more just interesting observation where it's like where you know the, I thought the oceans were rising and it's getting hotter and hotter. Why are you going to Miami? Miami yeah. is like the new New York. Like, why is that happening? Should they <laughs> should they move this to like you know what Michigan or something <clears throat> where it's not gonna flood? I am not negative on many places. Like I would personally speaking, I would never invest in a deal in Miami. Why is that? Um, I'm interested because that is one of the strongest apartment markets. I know and that. housing markets in the entire country. I, know. I mean, even um, Goldman Sachs had a report on predicted mm-hmm. housing prices for 2023 and only one market was positive. Hmm. Miami. That's actually really interesting. Um, we have a market outlook model where we for Brenneman Capital, where we've inputted population growth, job data, demographic data by the zip code. Uh, for the whole country mm-hmm. and the number one market for price appreciation for the highest appreciation in multifamily is Miami in our model. So, you know, I feel like if you go to try to buy something, Miami, especially if Goldman Sachs is telling you it's the greatest market. Okay. The demand there is going to be very significant. So you're going to have a lot of competition. You're going to probably pay a very high price and pay a low cap rate. You have extremely high insurance costs. Uh, there are these things called hurricanes that come around every once in a while. Um, and it's sinking into the ocean eventually. I, I don't I don't know if it's in 10 years or 100 years, but if you're in an environment like that, it's, it's going to have a diminishing return in some way, shape, or form. And, and so my... In-laws live in uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, which is yeah, it's on the coast, right? quasi-susceptible to uh, hurricanes. And the joke in Wilmington is the only time you buy a beach house in Wilmington is after a hurricane. Because your property, that beach house is $5 million, and then the hurricane comes, and it's a million the you know right after a natural disaster happens the market gets decimated the capital gets scared and they get the hell out of there and and that is you know you're talking about stability of arizona and it even dallas like dallas is a boom bust market dallas has defied all odds and logic and grows like a weed and is a great place to invest Miami's just a little scary. If you could tell us more about Dallas, if you could. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. But no, uh, no. I, I look. I, I would tell you this. I I think what I uh, admire about Dallas is they've delivered like you know twenty to thirty thousand units for I God knows how many years in a row. Okay, a lot, and and it's grown substantially, but it's really a surprisingly affordable place to live, and it's kind of a great example and proof of what I believe in that like the supply side of housing solves all the uh, affordability problems okay density breeds affordability and and in Dallas you could go to move into a brand new beautiful and, and I don't know the market that well you can go move into a brand new beautiful place three bucks a foot or whatever it is. No, yeah, less it's, than that. It's not $5 a foot, okay? Like Chicago, 
is the exact opposite of Dallas. Chicago is an artificially inflated real estate market because you have a bunch of aldermen and a bunch of uh, people who think they're really important and, and can control you know, important development decisions in the city. Um, and, and then they open it up to the communities and, and let, you know, Debbie in her condo, you know, wh who thinks she's an architect, you know, dictate your height and your density and, you know, whatever. And so in Dallas, you know, they've flooded the market with apartments. You have a ton of product, you have great product. It's all occupied. It's actually pretty affordable. And, you know, like I said, in Chicago, you know, it's extraordinarily expensive to build here and you have to get these rents that like who can afford to pay five thousand dollars a month for an apartment? Yeah, that, that that's a, like even if you make two, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars a year, that's a lot of money. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I think that Dallas kind of is the poster child of. You know, it used to be a boom bust market. I, it's not really a boom bust market. No, anymore. it's so diversified. And too, in in the best stat that we have in the uh, we we had uh, we looked at the price declines of houses in the GFC. So 2008 to call it 2013, looking at the price action, we we broke it down. It was as a percentage, but then we're like, let's make it a, a simpler explanation. So assume in each market we have the information on. It was from Zillow. Let's say you had a hundred dollar house starting at the peak of the market. What's it worth at the bottom? Uh, in Florida, in some of these places, Vegas and in Phoenix, I mean, these houses went into like the forty dollars. Yeah. In in uh, Austin and in Dallas, it was about eighty eight dollars. Hmm. How crazy is that hmm. for like a strong housing market? For like for it has the least volatility of. Uh, return of like pricing like almost yeah. out of anywhere texas that's really one of the things we liked about it because obviously we like phoenix but that is up and down so then um and then uh and i, I like being in the middle of sunbelt obviously i moved to austin but now if we want to also but like buy in atlanta or yeah. nashville and come in here is two hours in a plane like it's it's a nice location yeah, it's a central location and and i like lakes too yeah so it's, a, it's uh so uh, something you just said made me think of this. So, you know, back to Miami very quickly and we can be done. So I, I have a good friend who moved to Boca with his family in 2018. He bought, you know, a normal four bedroom house. It was like $850,000. He got an appraisal last year after a ton of people tried to buy his house for $4 million. Wow. Okay. And, and it's, it's like people bought houses in 2019 for 500 and sold them for 2 million two years later. That to me is like, that has to be unwound probably okay. at some point, yeah. right? And so um, I still stand by my hurricane comment. That's probably my number one reason to not go there. Um, and I probably wouldn't go to Tampa either for the exact same reason, even though there's less risk there. But Anywhere where your housing price is quadrupling in a couple of years, there, there's got to be something else going on, right? Um, and and that probably isn't sustainable. I I hear you. Yeah, that's been even though it's our number one market in our model. Like you need to think beyond the model, and that's part of the. You fit better of, in Texas than Miami. A lot of some of the, uh, <laughs> yeah, I know the um, this lady that I met in Austin. Um, 
who was who had lived in uh, lived in L.A. and then moved to Austin, I think was what she and had lived in Miami. This is where this makes sense. And I was like, what was Miami like? Because I don't I mean, like I actually one of the things I like about Austin is all the the lakes that are there. Um, I grew up in a part of Wisconsin where there was a million lakes. And so I'm used to that. And um, it's like my only hobby, basically, let's say at this point. But um, so Miami sounds cool. You know, if you need a lot of money there, you know, to yeah. do anything fun. You need a lot um, of flash. Because I was joking with someone <laughs> like if you have $10 million to spend in Miami, no problem, you know. $4 million house, $5 million house and a $5 million boat. Yeah. In Dallas, it's like you have 10 million to spend. It's like $3 million house. And then what? Yeah. You know, it was the, when we were in Dallas, we we're talking about like the costs and stuff. Uh, like, Go get a ranch somewhere. Yeah. And anyways, this, the, then now we're just talking <laughs> about nonsense. But anyways, what she said was living in Miami was like LA and Vegas had a baby. Yeah. And I, I don't know. That's it's, a not, fl- it's a flashy. Yeah. It's not for everybody also. Right. It's a yeah. flashy place. But I guess then let's, um, I mean, close it out. What markets are you seeing that come to mind when you say like are having trouble? Then, okay, Florida is with insurance and costs. Um, I'd say like the, because uh, I think you're talking about some that were faring well, some that weren't. Uh, every single place along the Gulf Coast, you know, if it, it small market, big market, you know, the ins- that insurance problem is pretty widespread. It's in it. There's so from a, Naples to Houston. Yeah problems pretty much okay um uh, you know carolinas are red hot um you know it's pretty easy to pick on um you know new york i guess but you know the the interesting thing and and i'm doing the opposite of what you asked me um but like i would have said la if i didn't talk to my counterpart in la a week ago and the la market is apparently picking up in a meaningful way despite uh, a lot of negative things going on. Um, well, a lot of these, the a lot of the gateway markets, so you're, with the exception of ones where, like San Francisco, so New York and LA, from like 2000 to, or let's say from, uh, the whole time I looked at information, from like say the 90s to 2008, it was always like, you look at those reports, like what are the best markets? And it was always just, the number one apartment markets were New York, San Francisco, LA only. They did the best. They had the lowest cap rates, mm-hmm. the highest rank growth, the least vacancy. People still have that in their heads, but the fundamentals about in 2012, it changed. Mm-hmm. The best markets are all in the Sun Belt now. There's times where like Indianapolis, Chicago, they're doing well right now. That's great. It's making up for lost time. You know, um, but rents barely yeah. increased in those places from 2015 to 2022. So that's great where you're getting rent growth now. But so what's weird though, is to, is the buyers in those markets, they're, they're detached from the fundamentals. Like they, they're going, they're used to buying a, a four cap rent control building in New York or LA and not being able to raise their rents and having their NOI go down. And they think that's real estate investing. You put down 70% and you make no cash flow, and they're going for the depreciation. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. You should buy a gas station and write the whole thing off in one year then. Uh, So unfortunately for you, the worst market in the country is Minneapolis. Why is that unfortunate for me? I don't know, because you own some product up there. (laughs) Yeah, it's all commercial Um, actually there. I don't own any multifamily. No, you know, it's actually a really sad state of affairs um, because it's a a great city and it's a great just state in general. 
Um, but it's they've been overtaken by uh, leftist liberal bureaucrats who are rolling out crazy policies that are having detrimental effects on their city, on their county, on their state. Uh, the capital is leaving. The the corporations aren't you know really trying to stick around, and um, and it's it's just kind of in a. Uh, a market that in 2017 was Austin, Texas, or or almost as hot as that. Yeah, it was the number one market. It in was these, it in was like an incredible place. Brokerage reports. It's it's unfortunate, you know, the George Floyd thing, um, and then some resulting, you know, bureaucratic changes has has made it kind of the the pariah. Uh, I yeah. would say. I mean, they had so much building. I remember going there in like 2019, and it. So many apartments were under construction. I mean, it was, I've never seen it like that in America. Yeah. I mean, I literally told Jim, my partner on those from Minnesota, like, yeah. this looks like parts of China right now. Yeah. This is like so much building. I've never seen something like this. And, but that's because it was number one market, 2017. Yeah. So money starts flowing there. Anyways, yeah, any place you defund the police and then start rent control, yeah, that's not great for investments. No. Well, it's scary. What is capital ultimately? I, where are the best markets in the country? Places that are stable with a lot of without a lot of drama. You know, people don't want people want to if they're going to take their millions of dollars and invest it somewhere, they want to know it's safe and that it's going to be taken care of and that they are not going to be treated like criminals for investing in the market or, you know, um, you know, the don't get me started on the whole law and order aspect of like our society right now. But you know, that's one of the biggest disservices like Chicago, for instance, if this city just cleaned up all the crime, I think a lot of the capital would actually start to come back. Cause, cause yeah. it, it's the only problem would be the property tax uncertainty. Yeah. And then that's Which is kind of over though, a little bit. Um, I mean, owning, uh, you know, 20 or so properties here. It's not, you don't, you still have, yeah, you went through this first reassessment wave uh, where now all the prior, all the buildings got raised, but so many of them got reduced to the board of review. Yeah. This is, we're in like the second inning of this tax nonsense, yeah. in my opinion. And like you got some buildings that are underassessed, some that are way over. And well, by the way, he's forcing sales too. I'm selling a building right now um, that is getting sold for effectively what it costs to build it because Kagi came in there and, you know, the taxes, you know, uh, two and a half X, uh, and, you know, talk about a huge hit to your NOI. I mean, they lost millions of dollars of value because he got a little aggressive on the North side of Chicago. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's more than crime. They need to get tax certainty. Even if it was the rates are higher or you're paying more like in Chicago, probably the most common, let's say, percent of your income that you're paying in taxes property taxes is probably depends on the deal 15 to 18 19 percent mm. uh, it's like that in ohio too obviously you can get you know screwed and be way higher but in like other states in texas in minnesota in a lot of these places it's higher but they know how it works mm. they chase your sale there and yeah. they and you just assume it went to your sale price or 95%. Making it predictable is, so, is a huge thing. So even though the rates are were are you know just as bad and the amounts you're paying are high, it's like they actually provide certainty though, and uh, yeah, but the crime, yeah, that's uh, that's 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 caused a lot of people to 
feeling being comfortable or yeah I, I mean and and some of that you know we talked about the capital markets problem you know look sometimes people have bad timing and you know if you bought something in 2019 in uh minneapolis you probably felt pretty good about it and then a year later there was a black swan event that killed the market and that market's not going to recover i don't think for 10 years probably i mean um, they need to have a reason to move into the city and right now they have a just as bad of a crime perception as chicago mm -hmm. the crime is nowhere near as bad though it's somewhat it's interesting to hear about how mild it is compared to chicago yeah. but it's the same perception and then so and it's a lot easier to get to the suburbs there it's like a, you know they don't have the traffic we have here but by the way the the suburbs in minneapolis are actually thriving that's what and i was doing saying. really yeah. well it's, that's it's where just, i was it's the city that's where i was going yeah. is yeah the, the suburbs are strong and uh and it's just it's as simple as that yeah. people don't feel safe in minneapolis and st paul they move out it's a five ten minute car ride down to nice suburbs you know Take your pick, Golden Valley, Minnetonka. There's a lot of places really nice close by. You know, Chicago is uh, a bit different. It's going to take you an hour to get to the nice suburbs nearly. Do, do, you, do you know what the difference, too, is? Uh, and I just thought of this, like, you know, New York City had a very, you know, and still does, you know, significant crime issue uh, when, like, de Blasio was uh, was in office. And it's carried into, um, I'm forgetting the new mayor's uh, name, Eric. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to know. So yeah, let's... so, um, but anyways, um, people want to live in New York, though, and people are willing in New York and Chicago to be like, I don't care. Like, this is, I want to, you know, go have some bougie, you know, uh, eats and, and have the, the culture and the amenities that this city and New York have to offer. Um, and, you, you know, if you're in Minneapolis, you know, it, there's parts of Minneapolis that are great, like the North Loop, but like it's not, you know, there, there, it's not enough to create a sticky reason for yeah, me. And right. LA is the same way. Like, you know, I think I think the one city actually that is going to probably be a casualty too, for the same exact reason, which is the most obvious one, is San Francisco. I mean, talk about a disaster. Like they yeah. completely. I mean, who would have thought that having drug addicts on the street? you know, harassing people would be a bad thing, right? And that that would drive businesses away and drive people away from wanting to live there. Um, so, you know, a lot of it's just logical. And, you know, at some point, some of the people in our society have have decided to go in in a different, you know, in a different direction. And it's, it's kind of sad to watch, you know, San Francisco's a great place, beautiful city, Lots of culture, lots of amenities, and you know they're having uh, a crisis of their own right now. Yeah, no, I hear you. I agree, and let's we'll wrap it up with one positive comment on <laughs> Chicago. So, some like the smaller deals; those are holding up a lot better pricing wise than yeah. the um, the institutional stuff you're talking about. So, any of the brokers that we all know that are doing those two to ten million dollar deals would be saying right now it's not as bad as Tyler's saying. So, when you're on the private buyer side, it's stronger, and rents are at all time high. Yeah. So it's not all not and, and, all negative, but by the way, I actually believe in Chicago. Like I said, I have a number of deals here right now. Um, and I am not trying to be overly negative. I'm just trying to be real about it. And at the end of the day, the funniest thing about all of this is the Chicago market right now is more liquid than it's ever been 
uh, in the last five years. Um, there have been no trades here for, you know, we were in the hottest real estate market, you know, since Jesus. And, uh, and, and like no deals traded in Chicago, which is weird. And then all of a sudden you have a capital markets problem there's some desperation out there and you're seeing, you're seeing some trades uh, that are, you know, um, good for the market because there's liquidity and there's investment coming here. But if I was a class, a luxury developer, merchant builder, trying to deliver some product in the city right now, I'd be a little scared because like Emmy that just traded, traded for 365 a door, you know, that deal, should be worth like 450 a door, in my opinion. Yeah, um, and there's no... in, in a good, in 2016, that deal trades for for probably four and a half cap, 450 a door. Well, and, the NOI per unit might have been higher. Though. Yeah, but but so I, I think the, you know, personally speaking, there's a couple big buyers out there that are taking the contrarian view in Chicago and including the the one that bought the Seneca that's, that's a good client of ours and, um, you know, I think they're going to make out like bandits and in two or three, just like in 07, you know, you saw some trades in this market back then that were a little eye popping and the people that had the stomach to jump in and do it, maybe it was all cash. Maybe it was a, you know, they had to put 60% equity in, but they, you know, a year or two or three later, you know, doubled their money and, and did really, really well. And I actually think that's exactly what's going to happen here. And then once that starts to happen, I think this market will start getting uh, going again because people will, you know, people are going to feel like they are missing out. So All right. I'm actually more bullish on Chicago than I probably put out here. Um, but, you know, it's it's just the, the hard thing for me is, is um, you know, there's uncertainty about, you know, whether or not things are going to improve from a crime and a tax and, and some of those other fronts. And and a little bit of movement in that would be would go a really long way. It would. So let's leave it there. Yeah. So how do people get in touch with you? If they want to reach uh, out. Email uh, tyler.hague at colliers.com. And uh, I'm available on my uh, phone. You can call me at midnight if you want to. All right. And just look up his phone number. Yeah. And shoot him a call in the middle of the night. Sounds good. Go. All right. Cool. Thanks for being on. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. Thanks for having good me job. again. If you learned something from today's show, leave a review and hit that subscribe button wherever you enjoy your podcast. Dive deeper into real estate investing on Brenneman Capital's website, Brenneman.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Accredited investors can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the Invest Now button on our website. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Brenneman Capital LLC and its subsidiaries. Views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities. The speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.